Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, uh, this was interesting because ECI, which has long published lots of uh, thought leadership and research on compliance programs, uh, ECI broke that down by company size. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance topic. This episode, we take a look at a recent report by ECI, which looked at compliance programs and a number of other issues based on company size, small, medium, and large. It had some interesting insights that every compliance professional needs to consider depending on the size of your organization. I know you will find it fascinating. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. With luck, we are now live on LinkedIn, Facebook, and perhaps a couple of other channels. So if you have any questions, please put them in the chat function and send them to us. Uh, first of all, Matt, welcome to the old and new Compliance Into the Weeds live edition. Hi, Tom. It's uh, good to be here, and I am excited that we are actually able to pull this off now with good Wi-Fi connectivity. Uh, Matt, you got interested in a recent ECI report that looked at things, uh, compliance programs, and some issues in a little bit different angle. Uh, what got you interested in this ECI report? Well, uh, this was interesting because ECI, which has long published lots of uh, thought leadership and research on compliance programs, uh, ECI broke that down by company size and what sort of experiences employees had around business ethics issues, depending on whether they were at a small company, which is 500 or fewer people, a medium company, which is 500 to 1,000, or a large company, which is a thousand or more. Uh, And this was all based on data that ECI had pulled together over the summer of 2020 in a large online survey that ECI had conducted. Uh, I know that means the data is a little bit dated, but I don't think the findings themselves would be all that out of date. They seem to make a lot of sense. We can get into what the uh, findings are. But more than anything else, Tom, what stood out to me in total was that uh, clearly middle-sized companies are in a bit more of a squeeze than either small or large companies. Uh, They're more likely to say employees at medium companies, more likely to say they feel pressure to commit misconduct. Um, They're more likely to observe misconduct. They're more likely to suffer retaliation when they complain. That's what they all say. Um, On the bright side, Employees at medium enterprises also are more likely to report misconduct and more likely to report incidents of retaliation. That's nice. Uh, But we have an interesting picture here that tells uh, an interesting tale compliance officers could use to think about how you staff up and implement your own program. 
so before we get to maybe some of the insights that you drew from this, Matt, in addition to sort of the big picture numbers you gave us, could you maybe go in a little bit to the weeds about what the actual numbers were in the small, medium, and large size companies, both in terms of reporting uh, those who may have observed um, misconduct and retaliation? So let's see, where are they? I, I have some numbers we can share. So for example, um, who feels pressure to uh, commit misconduct at what organizations? Medium organizations, 52% of employees said they felt some sort of pressure within the last 12 months to commit misconduct. Uh, that is higher than either large organizations, where only 28% said that, or small organizations, where only 30% said that. Um, or at the same time, uh, who was likely to report misconduct or incidents that they had seen? So the good news is the numbers are pretty high on who is likely to report across the board, but the numbers would be 93% for medium organizations. That's nice. Uh, versus 87% at small organizations and only 80% at large organizations. We should circle back to that number because I have some concerns about large organizations with that 80% number. Um, but you know we do see that. Uh, here's one more statistic I'll throw out. Uh, employees at medium-sized enterprises are more likely to have observed unethical behavior, not necessarily felt pressure to do it themselves, but they just saw it happen somewhere. So the numbers were 71% at medium companies, 54% at small companies, and 55% at large companies. So any way you look at the more alarming head-grabbing issues, who's seeing misconduct, who's feeling pressure to uh, committed, who's suffering retaliation, medium-sized companies were at a fair margin above, you know, not a small little squeaker in the first place. They were easily in first place across several categories over small and large companies alike. So Matt, um, if you are in a small, medium, or large company, how might you, or how would you counsel someone in one of those shoes to maybe begin to think through these numbers? Well, you know, so it's hard to say exactly why mid-sized companies might be in this red zone. And the ECI report has a lot of good data to look at. It touches lightly on what might be going on with mid-sized companies. But their example of why mid-sized companies might be suffering a bit more is probably a good point for every compliance officer to think about. It's uh, ECI has seen before that pressure to commit misconduct tends to increase during periods of organizational change. Now, what is that? Um, that is things like uh, IPOs that you're looking to do, mergers or acquisitions that your company's trying to uh, digest, a restructuring that might be going on, change of leadership. So anything like that is probably going to bring stress to the employees and the workforce. And that's a very short jump from, I feel stressed to maybe I have to commit misconduct. Maybe I'm being told to, maybe I see it going on over there. Um, but when you think about it, what sort of company is most likely to go through those periods of organizational change? 
I would say probably middle-sized companies are. If you are a large company, you've already done the IPO. You've already had mergers before. You've already gone through restructurings before. That's somewhat old hat for a large company. Um, at the same time, by the other extreme, smaller companies, they probably haven't yet reached that critical mass where they're really starting to put structure and apparatus around things. They're, you know, If you're a small company, you're probably not thinking about an IPO right now. You might not necessarily be thinking about acquiring a company. Maybe you want to get acquired by private equity or something like that. That's possible. But a lot of those growth pains, they tend to hit in this corporate adolescence, which is a mid-sized company. So you know, that's why I think middle-sized companies are probably in this uh, danger zone. But for anybody, small, medium, or large, you could start thinking through, right, well, what are the sort of corporate growth pains my company might hit anytime soon? And then I should start thinking through, are we prepared for that? And different types of misconduct are reported at different size companies. That's another incident, uh, little nifty data chart that ECI churned out. You could think a bit about that as well. Um, maybe there are different tools or program components you would want to implement or strengthen depending on if you're small, medium, or large. We could talk about that too. But that's what I would advise compliance officers. Understand the size of your company, but also understand that broad point from ECI. Corporate disruption and organizational change are weak periods. And so are you going through that weak period? If you are, what kind of weakness or what kind of change are you going through? And then, all right, let's reverse engineer. How might that affect misconduct here? What sort of supports would we want to throw in or strengthen to make sure that we're in a good position if the change is going to lead to temptation or greater pressure? Matt, the, uh, uh, wrote a, obviously a blog post on this, so we're going to link to it in the show notes. But Matt, after reading your blog post, what came up for me was a question I'm often asked, which is along the lines of the following when do we need to get internal controls in place in our company? We're a six person, we're a 60 person, we're a 600 person uh, company. And my answer is always as soon as possible, if not sooner, because internal controls are not designed for compliance, they're designed as financial controls. And you could piggyback your compliance off of your financial controls. It seems to me that, um, by implementing a robust system of internal controls, uh, somewhat based on SOX, uh, you could, if you have a small company that would help in this growth phase of the middle companies that uh, the ECI report has seen, uh, where there's perhaps more troubling conduct. Um, any thoughts of, about when a company should put those types of controls in place? Or does this information uh, suggest something else to you? Well. I think it's very valid to say if you embed internal controls while you're a small company, you'll be in much better shape as you edge into the medium-sized company zone, and then you might hit more periods of change more quickly, but you'll already have those control structures in place that will help you out. That's very good to, to keep in mind. I would maybe expound a bit more on what internal controls are and, you know, really, they are about bringing formality and structure to dis judgments that at an extremely small company, a startup of 20 people, 
you probably could get away with very few internal controls because you've got few people and they're working together so closely that you can exercise a lot of direct human oversight and human judgment on something like, say, um, reimbursement for personal expenses, where really if you're looking for only four or five receipts for an employee on a business trip and there's only two or three of them who would ever take a business trip in a quarter, a CEO or CFO of a 20-person company, so like micro-scale company, you can do that pretty much with paper and judgment and knowing the person. But you know, eventually you will want to put in more structure if you're at 100 people where suddenly you're thinking, all right, it's not just about personal expenses. It's about budgeting and it's about things like purchase orders and invoices for other expenses that we might incur and how are we going to get around this? So there are different types of structures that will need to exist at different periods, depending on how quickly you grow, how quickly you think you're going to grow, um, what types of business you're in. Tom, you said internal accounting controls are about finance. They are, but they are also, I would say, about you know cybersecurity and handling of personal private data. Um, you know, the through line there is that there's going to be structure and formality so that the process unfolds regardless of who is actually at the business. When you go from 10 or 15 people where everyone knows everyone to 50 to 100, suddenly it is much more depersonalized and you're going to need internal controls to guide the structure, to guide the process, no matter who this person is. Once you get into that sort of muscle memory at a smaller level, you're going to be able to Keep that even as you scale up to medium and large size. And don't get me wrong, as you scale up, some of the internal controls that you had, some of the processes and systems, you're going to have to replace those. Eventually, if you're a huge company, you're going to need an SAP system or Oracle or some other big monstrosity, and you're going to need all sorts of controls for purchase orders and invoices and onboarding new vendors, and I couldn't even speculate about what else. But the sooner you start that exercise, the more you'll be able to repeat the exercise as it gets more complicated with growth. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more Compliance Into the Weeds. And Matt, the other thing that uh, your blog post brought up for me was I observed, um, particularly in uh, energy companies in Texas, smaller companies, when they were truly small and as they grew, uh, they might have a legal resource, a general counsel, typically did not have a, a full-time or dedicated compliance officer. But uh, the numbers would seem to suggest at some point that model uh, is just outgrown by the number of employees. So I'm wondering... Uh, from the companies that went from small to mid-size, did they have a dedicated compliance function or resource? Did they have a subject matter expert? And is there at some point that a company really needs to bring in uh, not simply a, a compliance program, but really compliance talent in the form of a uh, some type of a compliance officer or chief compliance officer to maybe head off some of the problems uh, that ECI observed in medium companies as well? So the short answer is yes, uh, that is the pattern. And 
it makes sense. A lot of the data that ECI put forward there just makes a certain amount of logical common sense that um, stronger ethical cultures correlate with a strong compliance program. Now, I'm still unsure in my own brain uh, about which one is responsible for which. Does a strong compliance program boost the culture or does a strong ethical culture make it easier for companies to embed a good compliance program? I think we could debate that on another day. It's probably a very good debate to have. But ECI did say that the larger you are, the more of these compliance program elements you have. Again, like kind of a common sense finding. It shouldn't surprise anybody. Um, I would say that, you know, going back to what I mentioned before, not necessarily all elements need to be put in place for a proper sequence. Um, you know, say for example, it might depend on your industry, your geographic operations, where you are, corporate size, um, you know, maybe say training and written standards for behavior would be more helpful at smaller organizations than a formal hotline. But at a larger organization, I would say if you're going to strengthen anything or watch anything, watch the hotline and case management systems and make sure they're well-functioning and integrated because that helps you resolve cases more quickly. And at a large company, that's the thing you have to show the workforce is that we can resolve a complaint quickly then they understand that even at this big, vast, impersonal corporate thing, the company still cares about me and the issues I'm bringing forward, so I still want to report them. And that's what you're trying to achieve at a large organization. I don't know that you would need to achieve that at a small organization, because if there's only 50 people and everybody knows the CEO, it's going to be pretty easy for a good CEO to show that, yes, I do care and I am not a big, vast corporate enterprise. Um, but you might want more training at a smaller level, whereas at a larger level, training is already pretty much should be like a smoothly functioning, well understood part of compliance. So a way of saying you will eventually need all elements, but which ones you need at what time, they are going to depend on a couple of different factors, including the, just the size of your company. <laughs> And I really applaud ECI for uh, looking at it in this way and for you writing uh, your blog posts, which really helps us delve into some of these. Um, I wanted to take things in a completely different direction, uh, playing off your well-known love of Cambridge sure. and the university associated with Cambridge. This is a university not associated with Cambridge, uh, but also in the Ivy League, Yale. And uh, Yale last week, uh, it was revealed that an employee in purchasing who'd been with Yale for some 23 years had embezzled over $40 million from Yale University. Uh, did you get a chance to, to look at any of that? Uh, I will have to admit I did not. But, of course, being from Cambridge, we have multiple universities in Cambridge that are, of course, better than anything anywhere else in the world. Uh, I am not surprised. That's unfortunate news, but I haven't been briefed on the facts of the Yale case yet. That is, uh, that's certainly a sorry thing to hear about. Um, the thing that intrigued me the most was that there was a level of review of purchases uh, for invoices above 10000 And for years, she lived with invoices at $9,990. Yeah. And um, it just made me think about all of the times that our internal audit friends have talked to us about those limits and people that hang around those limits 
and she just didn't buy a few lunches uh, with uh, getting close to the limit. Uh, she had a quite a nice lifestyle, even for someone in uh, New Haven. So uh, perhaps we can look at her uh, somewhere down the road. You know, it's funny, though, Tom, because the numbers that you're talking about are larger than what I have heard elsewhere. But this is not a new story. And I know, for example, multiple large public utilities where they have uh, a special approval process for gifts and entertainment receipts above $50. And they specifically look at which employees are submitting receipts at $49 and how often they are doing that. Um, so again, this is like an example of with good data analytics and a cynical attitude, you could probably build good mechanisms to figure out scams like that. Uh, that is unfortunate, but you know, Yaley's, the Eli's, it's just a sad state of affairs for that those folks down the road. Well, Matt, this has been a lot of fun, very informative, and I look forward to seeing what we come up with next week. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you haven't done so, I would urge you to listen to my recent five-part series, Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance. What is the intersection and why as a compliance officer do you need to be aware of the tax implications around compliance? Check it out, Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance on the Innovation and Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week where we return with another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.